Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. Uh, before we start, I want to give an apology. The, the show has been a bit uneven of late in terms of release dates. This particular episode is going to be released a little bit late because of the, the 4th of July holiday. Um, but we're getting back on track. So I, I, I swear to you, there will be <laughs> there will be episodes every week on Wednesday going forward. Um, that being said, I'm super excited to be here today with um, my colleague, Jennifer Braceris. Jennifer runs IW's legal shop, um, the Independent Women's Law Center, uh, where she's done all kinds of, of great work. She has a huge legal background um, in employment law um, and discrimination, which may become super relevant uh, as, as we start peeling back some some of the um, sort of, of not uh, Civil Rights Act uh, language itself, but some of those constructs around at some point. But we are here actually to do a SCOTUS rundown for you. So we're going to talk to Jennifer about some of the biggest cases that came out of the Supreme Court term and about the, the Supreme Court more generally, legitimacy of, of the judicial branch um, and some of these other important topics since so much of our politics is now decided in the court. So with all of that, welcome Jennifer to High Noon. Hey, Nez. Thanks for having me. Um, so let's kick it off with um, the, the case about student loan forgiveness, right? So we have the Biden administration granting a debt jubilee, the oldest trick in the the demagogue's book, um, a, a general debt jubilee, right? Um, but his, his administration grants this unilaterally without getting Congress involved, without actually, you know, going through uh, the procedure to actually forgive this debt, um, even though it's coming out of the Treasury. So what are what were the legal issues in this case? Because this case isn't really about student loan forgiveness. It's about the, the separation of powers and then also the language of an emergency statute. So could you like give us kind of a layout of this? Like what were the actual issues in this case? Yeah, I mean, I, I think on the merits, I don't think anybody ever really thought that the Biden administration was going to win this case. Um, But what the left hoped was that it would be dismissed on standing grounds, that the court would hold that the people who brought the cases um, weren't the proper parties and didn't properly bring the case before the court. So there were actually two cases. Um, One was brought by private individuals and the other was brought by the state of Missouri. Um, And in the first case brought by the private individuals, the court did say that they did not have standing um, to bring the case. The second case brought by the state of Missouri, there was a lot of back and forth at oral argument about whether this sort of independent government organization called um, Mohala, Mohala, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, um, the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority could... um, whether the state of Missouri could could sue on behalf of this independent government agency, um, and the court ruled that it could. Um, so once it ruled that, the merits of the case were, were fairly straightforward. Um, that was the much more complex legal issue. The merits of the case were basically, you know, not... The, the way the newspapers have played this is, you know, should something be done about student loan debt? And, you know, is it a good thing for the president to to erase student loan debt or not? And we can have those discussions, but that's not really what the case was about. The the question before the court was who has the authority to cancel student loan debt? Is it the secretary of education? No, the court said it is not the secretary of education who has that authority. 
Congress is the only body that has that authority. Um, and so, as you as you said, this was not really a case about student loans, but a case about the separation of powers um, and about government power generally, who, who holds it in what situations. Um, and in this case, the, the administration claimed the authority to cancel student loan debt under an act called the HEROES Act, um, which had been passed to allow the waiver or modification of debt for people, basically those who went off to war after 9-11. Um, it had nothing to do with the, the, the current economic situation. It had nothing to do with COVID. And in fact, not only President Biden, but Speaker Pelosi and others had, had long acknowledged that the HEROES Act um, wasn't applicable to this situation. But nevertheless, Biden decided and his Secretary of Education decided that they were going to do this anyway by administrative fiat and then just justify it after the fact, um, claim it was legal to do under the HEROES Act, which the court said not so fast. It's not. Yeah, this does seem to be, um, to me, to seem a bit of a case that shows the limitations of what can be done in the courtroom, because, of course, the Biden administration got everything they wanted out of student loan forgiveness. They got a boost in young voters going to the polls. And then by the time this was overturned by the court, right, um, <laughs> those votes haven't been taken back. And actually, I suspect, strongly suspect. So we're going to see the resumption of student loan payments, allegedly, um, in a couple weeks. But um or a couple months rather, but I, I strongly suspect, and we'll, we can come back a couple months and see if I'm right. I, I think the Biden administration will advance a different legal rationale, equally strained and tenuous, um, but hope that basically that rationale will carry them through the election, after which uh, they either can blame the payment resumption on those evil Republicans, or uh, alternatively, you know, there'll be the last election that Biden has to stand for. So, you know, he won't, he won't be as, as uh, worried about uh, taking off his, his younger base, but so they got everything politically that they, they needed out of this. Yeah, No, they absolutely did. And the, and the, you know, the media is complicit in this, whether it's because they um, are lazy and don't actually read the opinions or because they um, don't understand the opinions that they do read or because they're just complicit and wanting to play this a certain way is, you know, maybe, a, maybe all three, um, you know, that can be debated, but all of the headlines say things like, you know, court rolls back student loan forgiveness and, you know, the court is preventing the Biden administration from doing this great thing for, for young people um, who have student loan debt. And really, that's, that's not what it's about at all. It's actually, um, it's very similar to the case last term that um, you and I, Ines, have talked about before, the West Virginia versus the EPA case, um, which was a case that had to do with environmental regulations. And there the court very clearly said, you know, the EPA cannot make legislation. They can enforce the legislation that's that's passed by Congress, but they can't use it to go above and beyond what Congress has said. And and that same principle was at play here. It doesn't matter what law you want to apply it to. Um, the court is, is setting very clear boundaries and policing our constitution. And that's a good thing. That's, that's what the court is supposed to do. The court is supposed to keep each of the three branches of government 
in their lane. Um, and that is what it did here. Yeah, actually, one asked, do you, do you think the court is moving towards, I mean, we have in this case, like the, um, you know, separation of powers, we have the, what is it, the, I'm going to totally butcher the, the term of art here, but the basically large questions doctrine, right? Major, what, what's major, major questions? questions. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, major questions doctrine. We have generally uh, seeming moving towards skepticism or narrowing of Chevron deference to agencies. All of these things for my non-legal listeners are about what powers agencies have either vis-a-vis Congress or um, these are executive agencies, either uh, executive agencies vis-a-vis Congress or via the courts themselves, right? What's the role of judicial review when an agency puts out a regulation or a guidance letter or something of that sort? Um, do you think the court is moving towards a, you know, definable, holistic sort of vision of how, what their role is in policing these boundaries in in sort of a world where we very clearly have administrative state that operates not just as a fourth branch of government, but as the government most of the time. I mean, yes, but I think to put it that way suggests that the court is um, adopting this theory out of, out of, out of thin air, which of course it is not doing right. This is how our constitution was written. This, you know, most people to the extent they know anything about our constitution, non-lawyers mostly just know about the bill of rights um, they, they're not intimately familiar with the original document, which basically just set up our government and explained what powers the federal government has vis-a-vis the states and what power the three branches of government have vis-a-vis each other. And in the, in the modern era, basically since the New Deal, um, the court has not been enforcing those boundaries as clearly as as it should be. So now I think that the court um, is starting to right the ship. It's this isn't something that they're they're pulling out of thin air. You know, some people say, "Oh, the major questions doctrine." That's just made up law. Well, it's not really. It's a very simple notion that that any major issue that one would expect Congress to weigh in on that has a major political or economic impact on the country um, is something that these agencies can't just decide for people. They're not elected, these bureaucrats. And if Congress has legislated, for example, on the Clean Air Act or on student loans and other cases, um, these agencies can't just say, well, Congress passed a law about this topic Therefore, we can do whatever we want on this topic. No, no, that's not how it works. Um, and it's, it's something that liberals and conservatives alike should be concerned about because you can, you can switch, you know, take out the Clean Air Act, take out uh, the HEROES Act, plug in some other statute and plug in a conservative, you know, Department of Education there are big government conservatives who would gladly use the powers of the administrative state to enact policy that liberals wouldn't want them to be able to do. And they should have to go through Congress as well. This, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So these are procedural rulings. They're not liberal rulings. They're not conservative rulings. They protect everybody. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree sort of in abstract, but in in practice. I mean, that's not 
how not about the rulings, but about whether, um, you know, the administrative state sort of swings for the goose and the gander. We know that it doesn't. Um, we know no, that, that the people, the people who right. staff it are are overwhelmingly of a particular political perspective. And I would call that perspective sort of center neoliberalism. Yes, um, I suspect I, I, it wouldn't be. Look, I mean, I think you and I both know that, you know, George W. Bush, for example, whom, you know, I'm a big fan of, but not in this respect. He wanted to use the Department of Education to, you know, enact policy in ways that in conservative ways, but in ways that small C conservatives who really believe in small government and and enforcing our structural constitution weren't too happy about. So, um, you know, it does happen on both sides. And I'm just I'm simply cautioning, you know, liberals who read the paper and think, oh, my God, the sky is falling. The court just rules that the Department of Education can't do this thing um, should actually take a step back and ask themselves, you know, someday if Donald Trump is president again or somebody else is president whom they don't like, would we want them to be able to use the power of the administrative state in this way? And if they understand it that way, then maybe they won't be so hysterical about it. I, I think that, <laughs> I think that's uh, uh, definitely not going to happen uh, in terms of it would require the type of thinking that is, is uh, I think, derided on the left today as uh, enshrining well, the notions of 200 uh, white dead slave owners. That, you know what, that may be true in terms of people who are, you know, committed leftists. But frankly, most people, like I think of my nieces and nephews who are, you know, in their early 30s and have student loan debt, and they're not particularly political people. They read the headlines, and, and at first they're angry. And then somebody explains it to them, and they go, oh, oh, okay, yeah, the court's not that radical. This makes sense. Right. Eighth grade civics. I get it now. So I sort of feel like it's our job to remind the great mass of sort of normal, apolitical people who are just going about their day. Um, you know, it's our job as, as people in the media and, and lawyers and spokespeople to remind people what the court is doing and to explain to them that it's, it's not the way it's being portrayed in the media. I just I we'll we'll move on because I just think we're so far beyond that. But this is just a discussion uh, for another day because I wanted to ask you about um, the the next I think the biggest case in terms of politics uh, yeah. involved here, which is which is the affirmative action case involving Harvard and UNC. And first they were two separate cases, and they were the same case, and they were separate again because uh, because Justice Jackson would have to recuse herself; she was on on the admissions board or something like that. So, um, but. After all of this is said and done, we have a ruling on the, the constitutionality of affirmative action. So what what does the ruling actually say? So, again, I, you know, I want to emphasize that the media has been completely duplicitous on this because the ruling here um, is not a reversal of precedent, it is completely consistent with everything the court has said about race since Brown versus Board of Education, which is that you cannot classify people on the basis of race, okay? And in the series of affirmative action cases leading up to this one, the court basically said the same thing. I mean, in the 1970s, um, in the Bakke case, which some people may be familiar with, the court struck down a program of racial quotas. And it was very clear 
that this sort of racial bean counting was offensive to our colorblind constitution. It did leave a loophole in that it said, look, you can't have a quota system like you have here in this particular case, but schools that are doing a holistic analysis of individuals can look for diversity in their student body and, and meaning diversity in the true sense, right? Ideological diversity, geographic diversity, um, you know, different backgrounds, someone from the Middle East, someone from Ireland, someone from here or there. That's true diversity. And that diversity, the court said, all other things being equal between applicants is something that it's okay for a court, for a school to consider as one factor among many. Well, the left took that loophole in Baki and rammed a truck through it for the next couple of decades, right? And that's really where you get the term diversity was not a common uh, phrase in our lexicon until the left latched on to this loophole in Baki and grabbed on to diversity as a justification for what previously was only referred to as affirmative action or, or, or racial preferences. Um, all of a sudden, we're talking about diversity because, because the schools think, well, the court said we can, we can do diversity. So we're going to call it diversity. Um, there were several other cases leading up to uh, the, the current two cases, the Harvard case and the UNC cases, where, again, the court reiterated, look, you can't add points to somebody's application just because they're black or, or you know, Latino or a woman. You can't just add points because of that. Again, it has to be a holistic enterprise. Um, and once again, you know, the, the, the schools just found ways around it, which is exactly what's going to happen here. So in these particular cases, the, the Harvard case in particular, the facts were incredibly bad for Harvard. Um, the facts of this case showed that what the university was doing is giving each applicant a rating in different categories, including academic and otherwise, but one of their categories was a personality rating. And repeatedly, time and time again, Asians got these terrible personality ratings that when you looked at the, the discovery material, the emails and the, the evidence before the court, were, they were all based in racial stereotypes. This person's too boring. They play the violin and they're really good at math. Like this isn't, you know, this is just a stereotypical hardworking Asian. We don't want this person. I mean, it was really kind of awful stuff. So the facts were never going to be, you know, the facts were not good for Harvard. It was clear that the personality category was a pretext for discrimination against Asians. Um, and, you know, I'm shocked that Harvard won in the district court to begin with because the facts were so bad for them. Um, you know, overall, conservatives are are cheering this decision. And it is it's a, a victory, a legal victory for our colorblind constitution. Um, but the reality is it's not going to stop elite schools from trying to socially engineer the right racial mix of students. They're going to find other ways to do it. Um, you know, I have four kids who I've just all gotten through the college admissions process, and and I'm pretty sure I know some of the ways they're going to do it. Uh, my son, for example, just he just applied. He's going to college in the fall. He applied to 17 schools, and I can tell you that at least five of those schools asked for diversity statements and asked for photographs. 
And there's a reason they were asking for photographs because they want to assess the pigmentation of people's skin. Now, it was optional sending in a photograph and the diversity statements, you know, you just find something to write about either how oppressed you've been or how you care about diversity, whether it's, it's intellectual diversity or whatever, but they're, they're asking for these statements. So they're going to find a way around it. It'll have a bigger impact on schools like UNC and other state schools where it's really impossible with the number of applicants to do an individualized um, holistic examination of each person who applies because there's just too many. So Whereas before, things like standardized test scores and grades, you know, served as cutoffs um, so that schools with a huge number of applicants, you know, they could winnow out the, the clearly unqualified and then only look at a few. They're not going to be able to do that anymore because they're not going to be using those metrics. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what those schools do. My suspicion is that they will... Many of them will adopt 10% plans like they have in Florida and other schools where they just take the top 10% um, of students from every public high school in the, in the state. There are lots of things they can do. And that, that will have a, a positive impact on ge geographic diversity within the state, socioeconomic diversity, um, and probably by default, racial and, and ethnic diversity. Um, but you know, the bottom line is schools are going to all schools, particularly the elite schools, are going to find a way to do this. Yeah, there's that that loophole um, you can already see in the case, right, um, where uh, the opinion says, well, of course, you know, you can take into account overcoming adversity if somebody writes about it in their essay. Right. And that's exactly what you're referring to. I think even back when I was applying, I think that there was a you had there was a diversity prompt. And I think I wrote about intellectual diversity. I'm sure that's a wasn't received well by uh, various no, decisions no, 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 to law school. So it's top 10 law school, but you know, in some places that will be, that will be uh, received well in other places it won't. And I think the problem is what they're really doing is asking every student who applies to be a victim and to explain to them how they've been a victim in their life. It doesn't necessarily have to be racial, but victimhood is the coin of the realm and they've made it coin of the realm. And, you know, that has problems that permeate society for the next couple of generations, as you know, but well, I think it's very unfortunate. And then what you see at the same time of these schools are going to be remaining test optional, you know, putting less emphasis on grades. Um, maybe they'll still look at grades, but they won't look at weighted averages, like whether you take honors classes and stuff like that. They'll do all sorts of things to, um, you know, uh, get rid of indices of merit, right? And then they'll be asking you for, you know, your victim statement. But then on top of it, a lot of them, like Amherst College last year, got rid of legacy admissions because they decided that that had a negative impact on minorities. Well, actually, I think it's kind of ironic that these schools are getting rid of legacy admissions now in the first generation where minorities have an opportunity to take advantage of them. Like now you have a whole cohort 
of Black and Hispanic and Asian people who went to Harvard and Yale and Princeton and their kids are applying, right? And so there's an opportunity for their kids to get a boost without considering race, which is the only factor that's illegal to consider. And they're saying, okay, well, we're not going to do legacy admissions anymore. So, so now we're not going to get the Black and Hispanic kids whose parents were well-educated at Ivy League schools and who themselves are probably you know, well-educated and prepared to do the work at these schools. No, we're going to get the ones you know, who are first generation, low income. They're, you know, and that's fine if you're, you know, they're, they have indices of merit on test scores and grades, but we're not looking at that anymore. So we're going to be basically bringing up people who are the biggest victims and the most unprepared to do the work. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty dark. And I, I've, I've wondered if, if actually, um, so the example of California, for example, I mean, Cal- California um, banned racial preferences in admissions in these public universities um, well over a decade ago, a um, couple decades ago at this point, uh, through Prop 209, um, which was recently reaffirmed by another referendum, even in deep blue California. Right. And I, I mean, there was a crazy imbalance between the amount of money the two sides spent. Of course, every major paper in the state, um, you know, endorsed this proposition to basically repeal Prop 209 and, and reintroduce racial preferences or the legality of racial preferences in the state. It failed. So even Californians, I mean, this is a very politically unpopular uh, position of, right. of taking into account race because you know most people understand that when you say that racial preferences are bad it's all ra- racial preferences um re- regardless of whose ox is getting gored but mm-hmm. uh i mean that being said the uc system has aggressively practiced racial preferences for the last two decades right um through quote-unquote holistic review process um so, I mean, yes, it's a little difficult for a big school. I mean, I, I take your point. Um, you're getting 30,000, 50,000 applicants. Um, but yeah, I, I honestly oh, don't you're even know. More than that. You're getting 35,000 at 40,000 applicants at, at Harvard and Yale. You're getting well, per school at, at, at um, big state schools. Well, per, well, I guess um, I have no idea, actually. But yes, I, I, they used to do it um, back in, in the day because I used to work in sort of this test process, uh, test prep and admissions process back in the day. Yes, they would use your SAT score as a, a cutoff. So they would just winnow the pool right. way, way down based on a cutoff. And then within the people who made the cutoff, they would take into account other things up to and including your essay. No interview process, no like. Uh, but even even in that process, um, there was enormous room for preferences. And you could see it because you could see as each school in the UC system adopted holistic review, right? So um, Berkeley and UCLA went first. Um, and then at that time, UC San Diego, where I went for undergrad was number three and they, they started to shoot up in the rankings because they just started admitting all the Asians that were getting, uh, bounced from UCLA and, <laughs> uh, but eventually they fell too, right? They fell to the holistic review process and to worries about, uh, they particularly were worried about actually not reflecting, not having enough Hispanics at the school because it's San Diego. So that the, the diversity makeup of the school was radically different than uh, the other schools in the area because they were essentially admitting all of the, the rejected Asian students from UCLA and Berkeley who were qualified to go to UCLA and Berkeley. I mean, uh, a lot of this is, is 
was until now to some extent speculation, but now we have these these numbers, right? It's like very bad actual facts that you referred to in in the Harvard case, right? Where you can look at the the behind the scenes data, what your chances of admission are for any given sort of metrics, right? Um, SAT and, and GPA, what the average across different racial groups has been. So it's very clear what what is going on in the facts of the case. What application? So to, to, to look at this for the upside for a moment. So yes, if we assume that. It'll be the start of a long battle, right? Trying to get um, university admissions to disregard racial preferences. Um, what, what in this case, if anything, is applicable beyond the university context, um, both in and out of the courtroom? Because it, it seems to me that something that we, we all kind of know and, and refuse to say out loud is that there are racial preferences in almost every aspect of American life. In fact, you might even call it systemic racism, but they run the other way, right? That every mar- major American corporation is desperate to hire and promote, you know, underrepresented minorities um, to the extent of, of probably putting their thumb on the scale when it comes to, to promotions and so forth, right? Um, we certainly have blatantly racist. Yeah, yeah, it's like a thumb on the scale has never been the problem because the reality is what they're doing is much, much more than a thumb on the scale. Like Harvard was not looking at a black applicant and an Asian applicant and saying, well, you know what, they're equally qualified, but you know, this black applicant might've suffered discrimination in a way that this other applicant didn't. So we're going to put the thumb on the scale. That is not what was happening. And, and the data made that clear. And the reason we know that is because the percentage of, of minorities at Harvard remained essentially the same every year. So if you were really doing a holistic a review of individuals, that number would fluctuate, right? Maybe, maybe one year you'd have 15%, one year you'd have seven, one year you'd have 20, because it would depend on the individuals and you wouldn't be bean counting. But, but what, what the data showed is that, you know, whatever admissions decisions were happening, they were in the final analysis making everything even so that they didn't have fewer than the year before. And that's a quota. So that, that is not a thumb on the scale. That is that's, a quota. That's, so uh, that, that's what's happening in the university context. I would still, and maybe um, people can write in and, and say that it's, it's gone way beyond that, even in the private context. I think because at the end of the day, a lot of private companies have a bottom line to maintain um, until let me revise that. There are fields, and this is Elon made that very clear at Twitter by firing 70% of the staff, that there's an enormous number of people who don't actually contribute to the bottom line in a lot of companies and nevertheless are making very nice salaries, many of them connected to this sort of diversity industry. But um, let's let's call it let's let's be optimistic and call it the thumb on the scale, but even so that that this is happening in private American companies as well. Right. So, it's so, not just happening in the university context. To answer, right. To answer your question about what is the impact of this case for other sectors of society, I would say it's both very great and very small. It's very great in, in the legal sense, right? Because the principles that were applied in, in these cases apply, of course, to government contracting, to, you know. That was my next question. Right. To government contracting, to, to, you know, employment, employers covered by Title VII, um, all of this stuff. The principles are the same. And in fact, you know, for a long time, the left has argued that education was special. Education was 
was different than government contracting, different than regular employment, because the role of the university is to create a class that will learn from each other, right? You're creating a student body and that's, you know, they even said that they have a first amendment right to kind of constitute themselves how they see fit, right? Like if, if Harvard wants to say, we are only going to take kids from the inner city whose parents, you know, worked in a factory. They can say that if they want to, right? They, they have a right to say that because they're creating who they are. So they have long argued that because of this, you know, special role of creating a class, that they're different than a government contract, which should just be done based on bids or, right? And so that even if the Equal Protection Clause forbids racial preferences in government contracting, oh, that doesn't apply to us. We're special. We're education. So... In fact, it does apply to them. And if it applies to them, it certainly applies to the other industries, which you know nobody's ever claimed that they have this special right to do this. Um, I guess you could say, you know, in some industries in government contracting, there's the argument that, that there was specific discrimination against Blacks or some other group and that the preferences are being used to remedy specific discrimination. But the court has never said ever that we can use racial preferences to remedy societal discrimination. Um, and they've never said that these other industries have a right just to rely on diversity for its own sake. So um, legally, I think the case has some very important implications for other sectors, but the reality is, you know, our legal system is just the parties that come before the court. And so the ruling technically doesn't apply to say government contracting or, you know, diversity initiatives at a company. Um, and the left is going to resist change with every fiber of its being. And just as it took decades to enforce Brown versus board of education, it's going to take decades of lawsuits in these other sectors to apply this ruling and to enforce this ruling. So I guess the hopeful point there um, would be just that even though they've um, sort of gone very far culturally left in recent years, I think some of the, the last couple months especially have shown that they are afraid of um, sort of a backlash in the other direction. And indeed with the, the changes to the civil rights act in the 1990s, uh, they they reacted in a very CYA, as you know, better than anyone having done this employment, right? Like large corporations reacted in a very, you know, um, CYA sort of way, right? Uh, that's where a lot of this kind of um, clamping down on the office environment, nobody say anything remotely offensive, we have to bend over backwards for everybody's like sort of sensitivities came from is because it suddenly became much easier to get a, a large award um, suing on the basis of employment discrimination, um, I, I mean, hopeful, I am hopeful that maybe we can, we can realign some of those incentives. In other words, that we can use that, that CY impulse to our own ends, uh, we may get like a result take, before. Yeah. An army of conservative litigators like Ed Blum, who brought, who's the, the brains behind the students for fair admissions case, um, it's going to take an army of lawyers to to be vigilant and to enforce this because, like I said, they're they're 
It is entrenched. It is systemic. And they will fight. Um, they've, you know, one of the first things that happened in the aftermath of the case is all of these schools and companies and institutions immediately put out statements saying, of course, we'll apply, we'll comply with the decision, but this doesn't change our core values. And we're still going to be doing everything we can to support diversity, equity, and inclusion. Read, we're going to drive a hole through the loophole. So they have no intention of complying. They never did. And it's, it's up to us in the conservative movement to enforce the law. Um, so let's let's start to be so negative about it, but but no, I, no, it's, it's very much the experience of California, right? Like that it's been impossible to enforce that admissions is such a um, especially in in smaller schools is so much of a like sort of delicate process. But as as you say, I mean, I, I think actually just getting the numbers out there, I'm wondering how well we get the numbers out there for a place like Google, for example, right? Like it's a little harder because there's no GPA and SAT, but what if we dig into, like we find some, we get, we get to a discovery level with some lawsuit with Google and we find out, you know, that performance reviews on the basis of performance reviews, for example, like black employees are way more likely to be promoted on the same performance reviews than like white male straight employees. Right. Um, or well, something like I, I, I always said this Harvard case was always about the discovery material, right? It wasn't really about what happened in the district court. Um, and it, it was about getting to the Supreme court, but to some extent it was about transparency and exposing what these people are really doing. Um, and so, you know, bringing cases, it's worth it to bring cases sometimes just to find out what's happening behind the curtain. Um, the ironic thing, though, about what, what you're saying about getting the numbers is that this case will now make it harder to prove discrimination in the future because, like I said, the scores are going to continue to be test optional. Um, they're going to they continue to reduce indices of merit. And when you don't have that information, you're not going to be able to run the statistical analysis to say, right, if if every decision is completely holistic and subjective, well, you know, we interviewed candidate A and we interviewed candidate B and we just liked candidate B better. You can't prove if it's a subjective thing. Oh, they had a better personality, right? It's going to be very hard to prove that it was racism, especially all of these schools have learned a lesson from Harvard and that is put nothing in writing. So, You'll be able to prove it if their numbers consistently show the same exact proportion of minorities, the same racial balance year after year after year. That will show that they're probably using a quota system. But it will be harder to show racial animus, which they were able to show in this case towards Asians, because they were able to prove that some of these Asian applicants were so incredibly well qualified and they documented their negative racial comments about them. That's not going to happen anymore. So it's going to be tough. All right. Well, um, let's let's move to another another case that conservatives are claiming victory over, and that's the three hundred three case, um, which is also coming out of Colorado once again. Um, right? Or is it? Yeah, Colorado. Yeah, Colorado is uh, doing a lot of the. Uh, um, a lot of some of the worst sort of uh, 
discrimination um, against, well, initially against religious people. Um, but but now uh, there's a, a basically a First Amendment case, a other part of the First Amendment case, a free speech case coming out of Colorado. We have a wedding website designer um, who says that she wants to uh, design websites. She's happy to design all kinds of websites for all kinds of customers, including for, for gay customers, but doesn't want to design a wedding website for her gay webs- um, customers. So one, what are the holdings in this case? And then um, two, how does this differ from Masterpiece Cake Shop? Because for a lot of people, it seemed yeah. like a rerun, but you, you, you explained to me well off air that it actually isn't. Yeah, so first of all, again, you know, the headlines about this case say things like Supreme Court says website designer can discriminate against gay people or website designer doesn't have to serve gay people. Okay, that is not true. That is not what the court said. Um, What the court said, and, and you alluded to this in your introduction, is that the state cannot force people to to speak, to create a message through their art or through their craft that they disagree with. So this woman will, you know, if a gay couple wants her to design a website for their flower shop or whatever, um, she's happy to do that. Um, But what she doesn't want to do is create websites for gay weddings because she doesn't approve of gay weddings. And one thing that the court, the way the court, described this in their opinion, in its opinion, I thought was really important. They basically said, look, take the the gay part out of it, okay? Let's say you had a Muslim website designer and a Jewish person came to them and said, we would like you to design a Zionist website, a pro-Israel website for us. And the Muslim person didn't want to do that because they don't agree with that. That person, the Muslim person, would not have to create that website, okay? This isn't just about gay or straight. This isn't just about religion. This is about anything. And the court also, they gave another example. They said, let's flip this around. Let's say the website designer was gay and was, you know, a man married to another man. And let's say somebody came to that gay web designer and said, I'd like you to make a website Um, that says any man who marries another man is going to burn in hell. Or, you know, I support prop whatever to get rid of gay marriage. Would the gay website designer have to put that out there? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So this was a case that was about free speech and your right and my right and everybody else's right not to be compelled to say things that the state wants them to say that they don't agree with. Um, The Masterpiece Cake Shop case was a little different. It was was a baker who didn't want to bake the gay wedding cake. Um, So it sort of started off as a similar type of case. But when it got to the Supreme Court, the posture was such that the court said... um, the, the baker had gone through the state administrative process with his claim, and the administrators who were reviewing his case said things that were very discriminatory towards um, religious people. And so the baker was religious. He didn't want to bake the gay wedding cake for religious reasons. 
I think same type of thing. He'd be happy to bake a cake for a gay family, but he just didn't want to put the two grooms on the top. But in the course of hearing that, there was so much discriminatory language um, used about religious folks that the court said, no, 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 you, the Colorado agency, have discriminated against the baker. Um, so it, it actually turned into a, a religious liberty, a religious discrimination case. Um, and Justice Thomas did write in his concurring opinion that he viewed this as not so much as a religious liberty issue, but as a freedom of expression issue. And that rationale was was what sort of carried the day here in the website case. Yeah, that's I mean, I, I think that is important, um, not only because there are two different streams of sort of legal precedent, but also I, I think the mentality that I would call it the RIFRA mentality, right? Um, on the right sometimes is, is to build a little Island around religious Liberty. Um, and the reality is of course, that a lot of these dictates from the left um, go, they, they, they of course conflict with, with Christianity or Judaism or Islam, uh, but they also conflict with uh, secular principles of long held beliefs, or sometimes they conflict with reality that anyone can see, like in the case of the trans issue. Right. Um, so I, I think it's probably a mistake to, to only, uh, right. So it's not just that, liberty, yeah. that religious people right. don't have to create these messages. Nobody has to create a message with which they disagree. And, you know, if if someone comes in and wants a cake that says Donald Trump for president and the baker, does, you know, is a is a raging Democrat and hates Donald Trump. The baker doesn't have to bake that cake. They can bake them a cake and say, here, you put the frosting on yourself. Right. They don't. They don't have to create th that message if it's offensive to them. And it, it really has very little to do with religious liberty. It has very little to do with gay rights. It has nothing to do with gay marriage in reality. It has to do with our right as citizens not to be forced to speak things that we don't agree with. And that's something everybody should agree with once again. But, you know, the way the media spins it, court rules against gay rights. Well, that's that's not actually what it is. Um, so I have, I have two boundaries questions for you. Um, in, in, in one direction, there's a boundary here between um, messages, right, and speech uh, and uh, accommodation, right? So like there's a boundary between the speech and then the action of transacting with a customer based on mm -hmm. some characteristic, right? So this is distinguished. That's why in both of these cases, the, um, you know, the plaintiffs are very uh, or Anyway, the, the people who are being sued here for, for discrimination, um, they they are really clearly like, oh, I, I serve all customers. I don't want to do this particular expression. Right. Mm -hmm. um, they're they're like distinguishing those two things. So what what is the boundary uh, in, in terms of, of between the, the freedom of speech here and, and uh, against being compelled to say something with which you don't agree and being compelled to associate as a matter of, of a customer transaction? Um, with let's say people with whom you disagree, like let's say that the the guy <laughs> in your example wants to exclude everyone who voted for Donald Trump as a customer. Well, that would be on one basis, but of course we do have a public accommodations law that says he can't do that uh, about eager people on the basis of race, for example. Right. So right. So that would be the distinction, right? So what's interesting about this case is that that question was not even before the court. So the parties stipulated in the first instance, um, they stipulated this is speech. 
This isn't conduct. This is pure expression of a creator, an artist designing a website. And both sides agreed to that. So what they were asking the court was to determine, assuming for the sake of argument that this is speech, um, does the right to free expression trump public accommodation laws that prohibit discrimination on the basis of race, sex, sexual orientation, whatever. So it's actually a pretty simple case. And frankly, I think it should have been nine nothing for that reason. Um, But the dissent uh, somehow went off on this whole tangent about how this isn't speech, this is conduct, this is discriminatory conduct. And the majority opinion by um, rightly called out the dissent and said, you are, are writing an opinion for a case that wasn't before us. That wasn't, that wasn't a question, right? The question wasn't whether this constitutes speech. The question was whether, assuming it's speech, you know, what right prevails? The constitutional right to free expression or, um, you know, the statutory public accommodations law? Um, so it should have been an easy case. The harder case, as you suggest, will be the case where the line isn't so clear um, and they're not saying we'll serve everyone. They're saying, you know what, um, I don't want to serve anybody who comes into my store with a Black Lives Matter shirt. But it just so happens that the only people who come into the store with those T-shirts are Black people and so they're not, they're only serving white customers. They're in reality not serving any black customers because every single black, every single customer that walks in there happens to have on a BLM t-shirt if they're black. Let's just say that's not going to happen, but that case would be a hard case, right? That would be, it would be a more difficult case to determine whether it's discriminatory conduct or whether it's just based on, you know, they don't want that message in their store. Um, but that again, that case wasn't before the court. Yeah, and I have another sort of hypothetical extension or question of, of boundaries here. Um, the other question here to me is at what point is expression or speech coming from a person or uh, attenuated by the corporate form, right? So here there's there's no problem. In fact, one of the most ridiculous aspects of this case was that the lower courts, one of the basis for their decision was that this woman was a monopoly of one because only she designed these particular wedding websites. And there's, you know, there's an aesthetic, she has an aesthetic monopoly on her product, basically, um, which may be true, but is not at all the definition of monopoly. Um, But I I could imagine, right, um, a situation in which you have very, very large companies. Uh, They say, let's let's use a a real one, right? Like, um, they say, we don't want to serve customers who support the Second Amendment. There's a, you know, a debanking problem with Second Amendment groups where they're having difficulty finding any bank of national size to hold their accounts uh, because all of those, those large banks are saying, no, we don't, we don't want to associate with this kind of customer. Um, and then in between, we have like sort of the closely held co- corporation like Hobby Lobby, right, which was also a matter of, even though that was about religious liberty in some, some degree, it's like, at what point are these rights that attach to people? I guess I'm asking the Mitt Romney question, right? The, uh, are corporations people too? Um, does a corporation have a right to free expression, a very, very large publicly traded corporation, 
where you don't actually have any individual who's creating this expression, right? Um, let's say it was a mass conglomerate that created wedding websites. Um, and they have thousands of people on staff creating all these websites. And any given one of them doesn't have to do the, the gay wedding announcement, right? Um, but someone in the corporation will. Or, but the corporation says as a whole, we as a corporation with thousands and thousands of people, publicly traded corporation, we don't want uh, to create invites for gay weddings or something like that. Right. Where, where, where's the difference between the corporations and the people here? Well, I mean, this opens up a whole other line of, of legal cases, but corporations do have First Amendment rights. Um, and so they don't necessarily have to serve people with certain viewpoints or put out messages with certain viewpoints. Um, now, they they have to serve all races and ethnicities because you know, these public accommodations laws, they they have to do with with race, right? With, you know, blacks and Latinos and, and, you know, gay people being able to shop and use the facilities and write public accommodations. Um, so, so that is protected. You know, your opinion on gun rights is protected. Uh, you have a right to express your opinion on gun rights, but that doesn't mean that a private corporation has to choose to do business with you. Um, now, if it's a monopoly, I mean, you know, if we were getting into some of the, the tech platforms, I mean, that's a whole nother discussion. But if it's, you know, a, a, a local bank or a um, private baker and they don't want to serve somebody who's pro Second Amendment and talks about it publicly, I guess they don't really have to. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think. I think it's complicated. This particular case was not complicated. Um, it, and that's why, you know, the left, I think, is so, is, is so hysterical about something that's so actually quite simple. Um, I don't, yeah, I mean, when you, when you go down these other avenues, that opens up a whole other line of, you know, you get you go down the whole path of, is this a common carrier? Is this a, you know, is this actually a public accommodation? Those are all factual questions that depend on the, the specific facts of the case. Yeah, I mean, look, from the, the 30,000 level foot level here, these are all restrictions on freedom of association to some degree or another, right? Um, when we're talking about buying and selling, and then there's the additional element of if you're buying and, or selling something that has an expressive message, then you're, you start to, to get into freedom of speech as well. And um, I just want to be clear about something, because you asked before about the line between speech and conduct, right? So let's just say that the gay couple ordered um, a cake for a birthday, like a regular cake. And the, the baker decided that they wanted to put a hostile anti-gay message on the cake. Like, and they just wrote, happy birthday, you, whatever, and used some pejorative slur, Okay that speech would not necessarily be protected because that is conduct. That's, that's bullying and that's, that's harassment, right? So if every time, you know, a person went into Starbucks and ordered a latte, their cup came back with a, you know, expressive comment that was actually a racial slur, that would be conduct, right? So, so 
speech can cross the line into discriminatory conduct when it's harassing. Um, again, not the case here. So it's the, the court is not saying that these proprietors have the right to, you know, engage in racially hostile, discriminatory, harassing speech. And, and the court thinks that's okay. That's their First Amendment rights. The court did not hold that. But, you know, if you're reading the coverage of it, one might think that that's what they, that, you know, they thought all speech was okay. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm obviously I'm asking these hypothetical questions, especially the one about what level these protections kick in between the, the individual and like a publicly traded multinational potentially corporation. I'm starting to rethink some of the um, protections. And, and I mean, look, it was central or not central, but it was an element of the Hobby Lobby holding the, the form of the corporation. Right. Being basically still controlled by one family. Um, mm -hmm. became relevant exactly because it was like, well, you know, at what point do these corporations become uh, entities with certain, you know, special favors granted by the corporate form, right? Corporations can do certain things that individuals can't, like, you know, it allows individuals when in the corporate form to protect their personal assets, for example, from the losses of the corporation. Well, if there are certain benefits granted, then maybe there are certain things required of the corporate right. form. And maybe one of those things we want to require going forward of, of these very large corporations is ex explicitly to sort of bar them from considering politics. Uh, right. Because otherwise we are, we do seem to be going into a sort of social, privately held social credit system. Um, right. So, I mean, I'm, I'm just opening some That's of these questions. That's a whole other, you know, but, Black Mirror episode to explore. <laughs> right. Um no, but I think I think these questions will. I, mean, I think that they're going to wind up in front of the court sooner rather than later. Is this questions right. of like the line between, um, you know, what's public accommodation and what is expression, right? The line between is it is it like an individual or or a large corporation? I, I think these things are going to become important uh, going right. forward because because of the divisions that we have so in this society. To establish the principle with the simple case. Right. Because, you know, hard cases make bad law. And so unless you have the foundation, right, law builds upon itself. It was important that they took this case to establish, you know, the foundational principle. Um, and again, that's one of the reasons I'm so disappointed it wasn't 9-0, because I, I really felt that this case could have been. Um, so let's let's turn to the court in general before we close here, because. Uh, obviously, the left has not taken any of these rulings well. Um, this might be the understatement. There were was already lots of chatter about packing the court on the left beforehand. Um, th there's also what I would call a prong of the same thing. These these now these uh, quote unquote devastating reports from ProPublica or whatever that you know two Supreme Court justices caught a fish with the same rich guy and this is apparently corruption. Um, so it's it's obvious that there's there's now an attempt to basically oh a third thing I noticed was there was a, a law professor in, in the pages of the New York Times who basically argued that um that uh basically that the other branches should start ignoring Supreme Court um decisions that they should just refuse to enforce uh, because the Supreme Court is illegitimate. So obviously these arguments are sort of bubbling up from at least three different fonts: the the packing. The ignore these decisions um, going forward, how the other branches ignore the court, and then the the oh these this this institution is corrupt, right? Because mm -hmm. with I mean that was an extremely thin story. 
Um, it was basically like some Supreme Court justice has a rich friend and we're going to put in a bunch of, of uh, adjectives in between to make it seem like that's that's something shady that's affecting the court. Yeah, you know right? what? Judges so. are allowed to have rich friends just like anybody else. I mean, you know, sorry. Um, but, but so there They're is- also allowed to have poor friends. They can be friends with whomever they want. They can go to their homes for dinner. They can get in their cars to go places. They can get on their planes to go places. Like it- is it's such a non-story and justice alito's response in the wall street journal um was was terrific i'm glad that he he did that publicly because so much of what judges do is is you know behind closed doors and they're they're not really able to defend themselves so by just answering the questions that were asked of him but making those answers available to the public um, I, I, I thought that was a very smart and important way to address the critique. Well, you're anticipating, I guess, what my question was going to be, which is, um, you know, how does the court and or folks in the center and on the right who want to defend the legitimacy of, of the judicial branch at this point, um, how do we go about doing that? Because it, it seems really clear to me that this is this is just the beginning of the drumbeat, which will become the standard right on, on the left. Um, it, it'll become a question the next time uh, the democratic party has political uh, has, has a primary, right. It'll become a question for the candidates. What are you going to do about the Supreme court? Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that's not going to stop. It's going to keep ramping up every time these, this, this particular set of justices makes an originalist ruling that the left doesn't like um, there. It's going to, to restart sort of a fresh round of this delegitimization campaign. So what can be done about it? I guess Alito speaking out is a, is a, a start, but wh- where do you think this, this whole situation is going to go? Well, I think we all need to speak out about it and we need to respond loudly and clearly every time they make these ridiculous allegations about the court. Um, the problem is that, you know, people on the left lawyers and non-lawyers alike, um, it's very easy to criticize. They like to criticize the court. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's an easy throwaway line. This isn't a normal court, blah, blah, blah. They're, you know, taking away our rights. The truth is that most people in the, you know, the center right don't care that much about the courts. Just constitutionally conservatives Right. They're concerned with it, getting up every day, going to work, raising their families, paying the bills. And they're not thinking about the courts day in and day out. Um, we need, you know, those of us who, who who again, work in media and politics, we need to make people understand why the courts matter um, and why the left is completely unhinged about the courts and why it's important to have a small C conservative court, meaning a court that's not activist, a court that's not trying to impose its will on the people, a court that is uh, doing its best to police the boundaries of our constitution and to put Congress or the executive branch back in its place when they overstep. That, that, That in and of itself is not activism. Activism is the opposite. Activism, you're not a judicial activist just because you strike down a law. If the law is an unconstitutional law, it should be struck down. A judicial activist is someone who 
actively uh, decides cases based on his or her political worldview. Okay, that's what a judicial activist is. And that is what is dangerous. Um, That is what's dangerous to all Americans. So we want a court that regardless of, of who appoints the justices or what their personal political views might be, understands that they need to stay in their lane and that the other branches of government do too. And so in that sense, um, you know, that, that's like, again, we, we've said several times in this conversation, eighth grade civics, which isn't being taught in our schools anymore, frankly. So if it's not being taught in our schools, we need to figure out a way to make sure our kids learn it and that we educate people, you know, through the media and, you know, all the ways that, that IWF tries to do with its, its, you know, little videos and its talking points. And, you know, we need to get things out there so that average everyday people, you know, have the facts in their hands and can, and can rebut this nonsense that somehow all of our rights come from these nine people in black robes. No, they don't. Yeah, it's, it's a, t- a tough case of, in this case, of rebuilding institutional trust, right? Because I think that institutional trust has been lost in virtually every uh, institution. But now conservatives, I think, in this case, have the difficult job of saying, right. no, not this one, right? Um, the problem is, you know, even in the, you know, the heyday of judicial activism in the you know 70s, right, when conservatives had lost faith in the, in the rulings of the court. And they were very upset about judicial activism. Conservatives never turned on the institution, right? They never turned on the idea that, that the institution itself is legitimate. We might've thought it was a rogue court, but we didn't think that the, the court as created by our founders was inherently, you know, undemocratic or, well, I mean, it is undemocratic it, technically, but we never thought it was, you know, bad for America. And so this is really, this is so foundational and it really goes back to civics education and the need to promote it um, from, you know, the cradle to the grave. Yeah. The, um, our, our first, our first uh, education expert, one might say, uh, Noah Webster famously said that the American education system uh, should be such that the first word of a babe in the cradle should be uh, Washington, meaning George Washington. So uh, he, he, that was his opinion on civics education. But yeah, we, we see in the modern, modern context, right, um, how destabilizing it is to not have an independent judiciary uh, that, that actually adheres to some constitutional boundaries. I mean, in, in Israel, Poland, Hungary, we have these sort of, it's really appreciate, made me appreciate um, these fights over what the role of the court is that, that it it makes me appreciate actually how, you know, America does have the longest running constitutional regime, right? Um, We are not the oldest country by, by a long shot, but we have the oldest continuous constitutional regime. And a lot of these questions, you know, we, a lot of these, these balance of power questions, what's the role of the court? We, we kind of hashed out in the, in the Marbury v. Madison days. Right. Um, and we went through that kind of instability of, of, well, can the court say, um, you know, can the court put out rulings? Is the, you know, is the president obligated to obey them? Right. Um, they see these younger, even though not younger countries, but younger regimes going through Israel founded in the, you know, in the late forties, 1940s, uh, Poland and Hungary being post-communist 
countries, right, in terms of having a new regime after communism, uh, they're going through through those growing pains. It makes me appreciate that America does have a long tradition and we have the, the relatively easier job, I think, now of, of, of merely defending and continuing that tradition, although that itself seems sometimes like a, uh, a challenge that overmatches us. It is a challenge. Yeah. Uh, on that note, um, thank you, Jennifer Braceris, Independent Women's Law Center. You can look up her work at the Independent Women's Law Center. Thanks, Jennifer, for joining. High Noon. Thanks for having me, Nats. Talk to you soon. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.